sermon notes that I had um, oftentimes I prepare for children or uh, youth who are of reading age up. Uh, helps them to listen to the sermon, follow along, and it just has a number of questions uh, regarding the content of the sermon. Uh, so my, my kids had it. So if any of you that are youth want to follow along, uh, it'll just help you uh, understand uh, the, the sermon. Okay. I just want to pray uh, just as I, we go into this. Heavenly Father, we do ask, Lord, that your word would go forth. And Lord, that we would be built up, strengthened, and formed. Your Holy Spirit that you've given to the church and to believers, it is our strength. He is our teacher. He is the one that emboldens us. And we do pray that uh, by this word, you would speak to us, that you would transform us, and that you would equip us, certainly to be witnesses to Christ in this generation, that we would be faithful uh, in light of the challenges uh, that we face in this generation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at Acts chapter 1 today, uh, but as I was preaching instead of uh, Pastor Jesse, uh, I know he's kicking off a series in the book of Acts, so I will be, in a sense, kind of introducing the book, a little bit of an overall overview of where you're going in the book of Acts, uh, but then focusing on chapter 1 particularly, but the focus will, will really focus on one of the verses, and that is verse 8, where Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Because that one verse, in a sense, encapsulates all that's going to be in the book of Acts. And it speaks to the church and each and every one of you of this great commission that Jesus has given to you as a Christian that you are going to be a witness to him. That Jesus is going to use you and your life and your words to testify, to declare, and to tell of the reality of who Jesus is. And through that testimony to expand the scope and the outreach of the church in the world. So each and every one of you has called to be a witness to testify of the reality and the truth of who Jesus is. So this book of Acts that we're looking at is telling this story of how Jesus begins his church and it expands. It begins in Jerusalem and it goes further and further out until it reaches to the ends of the earth. And certainly in relation to Jerusalem, wouldn't we say Australia is the ends of the earth? You know, the far-off isles, as the Old Testament prophesied, that the reality of what Jesus said would happen in this chapter, in Acts 1, is being fulfilled in our generation. And that commission and task, we are still a part of. So by way of introduction, as we look at the book of Acts, the author of Acts is whom? Or who? Luke. And Luke is writing, in a sense, a two-part account of who Jesus is. So the gospel of Luke is his first part. 
And in both the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel, or, or in the book of Acts, you have that introduction to both of the books where he explains to Theophilus that he's writing these accounts in order to give what? A credible account, a reliable, truthful, historical account in which a person can trust that the things that are written both in Luke and in Acts actually happened. That there were actual witnesses. That there is verifiable accounts. That this is not myth. That this is real and true. So that any reasonable person in having read Luke or having read Acts can have true truths, true facts to say, I can believe in this Jesus. That these things are credible. So he says that both in Luke's, he says that in Acts of the things that he is writing about. So you could read Luke and Acts as a, as a two-part series. And you'll notice as he says here in the beginning of Acts, he says in the first book, that's the, the gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is, therefore, that in the book of Acts, you see what Jesus is continuing to do and teach through his apostles. So the book of Acts, you know, my Bible says the Acts of the Apostles, right? And that's true. It's the Acts of the Apostles. So it tells the history of the early church. But really, if you want to be theologically more accurate, you could say this, that the book of Acts is everything that Jesus is continuing to do and teach by means of the Holy Spirit through his apostles. So it's the ongoing ministry of Jesus in this earth by the power of the Holy Spirit using his apostles and using the early church. And by extension, Jesus is still continuing to do and teach through us by the Holy Spirit given to us. So it's the Acts of the Apostles, and it gives a history of the early church here in chapter 1 and in the book of Pente or in Pentecost in chapter 2. And it's the expansion of the church, this testifying of Christ that begins in Jerusalem, and it's going to go to the ends of the earth. And the first half of the book, between chapters 1 and 12, primarily focus on Peter and the original apostles, Peter, James, and John, as they proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea in Israel, primarily to Jewish people. But a huge shift begins or happens in the second half of the book from, from chapters 13 to 28 when the focus becomes on the Apostle Paul in his mission journeys. And he is reaching primarily Gentiles. So Jews in the beginning and then Gentiles in the latter half of the book as they become witnesses to all the earth. As I looked 
as we look at this chapter in particular, I want to focus on three things. First is the promised spirit that Jesus promised that they would receive. Second, the outreach plan. How is Jesus going to reach the world? And third, the chosen ones. Whom has Jesus chosen to be his witnesses? First, let's look at the promised spirit. And there are two references to the spirit coming in verse 5 and in verse 8. And he's, as Jesus is risen from the, the dead and he's on the earth for 40 days. So in that little between time between his resurrection and his ascension, he is teaching them, preparing the apostles for his departure. But he's also showing the fact that he actually did rise from the dead. He was physically there and he met with them. You know, they touched his hands and he ate fish in their presence. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a hologram. He was actually there risen physically. But he says they were to wait until the promised spirit was given. And that spirit would be absolutely necessary for them to function and succeed in ministry. And this giving of the Spirit, this promise of the Spirit, was something that was promised in the Old Testament. And we see it in the books of Ezekiel and Isaiah, but mainly from the book of Joel. And the Pentecost sermon in chapter 2 is going to basically be explaining what Joel had promised, that the Spirit would be given not just to a few leaders and kings or, or priests or prophets, but the Spirit would be given to all believers. So they absolutely need the Spirit. This special outpouring and equipping in which the Spirit will, in a sense, create, form, and fuel the church. And without the Spirit in God's people, there's really no hope of success. And there's three things I want to look at of why the Spirit is absolutely necessary for the church. First of all, that the Spirit transforms. He said, stay there. You will be baptized, not with just water, but you'll be baptized with the Spirit and, in a sense, with fire. That there is going to be a coming of the Spirit upon people which will not just touch them from the outside, but it will transform them from the inside. It'll be internal. It'll be salvific. The Spirit will be the evidence that they become new creatures, new people, that they've received forgiveness of sins, that they have been saved. And this is so fundamentally important. This idea and reality that the Holy Spirit converts and transforms and makes people new. What's happening down in Victoria right now? Right? Laws against conversion. Conversion, you know, therapy. But at the idea is this, within our secular thinking right now, the ide ideology of our day is that you are what you are and you can't change it. You are immutable. You know, you can't change anything about you. There is no transformation. The essence of the Christian message is you are a bunch of rotten sinners. Amen? But Jesus in his love and his grace can change you. 
that you're, you become new creatures. You're a changed person. You don't, you don't just use a little education to reform yourself, turn over a new leaf. You have to be absolutely changed. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. And by the power and grace of God, he can make you into a new person. You can be transformed. You can be saved. You can be converted. The old man can be, is dead. You have a new person in Christ. Talk about a controversial belief system of our day that you don't have to settle for what you are. You can be a new person in Jesus Christ. So you have the spirit transformation to make you a new person. Salvation. And that is part of your testimony is that you can be transformed internally, made new by the Spirit of Christ. A second thing that this, what is absolutely necessary about the Spirit is that the Spirit reveals the Spirit is a teacher. The Spirit is not a mere force. I watched one of the Star Wars episodes, and it's so Eastern mysticism about the force, right? That is why it is, we have to talk about the Spirit as a he, that he is a personal um, being, Third, third person of the Trinity, but one of the functions of the Spirit is that He is a teacher. He is a guide. He is a counselor. He instructs you. He reveals who God is. He reveals truth to you and your understanding. That is why you grow in the wisdom and knowledge of God by the Holy Spirit given you. So you can have a true understanding of what God is like because God dwells in you, instructing you and teaching you about who God is. So the Spirit reveals. And you'll, you'll see this in the, in the apostles and, and in Peter, is that in the next chapter when he gets up to preach, how is it that this fisherman all of a sudden can can go from Old Testament texts, from, from Joel and the Psalms, and, and he can explain exegete, as we say. He can interpret accurately the meaning of all these texts. How did he get so smart so quickly? Well, he had Jesus as a teacher, first of all, but he has the Holy Spirit within him, leading him and guiding him, leading him into truth to understand God's word. So in your life, as you're going to be a witness to Christ, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you will make you smarter, will make you understand things, will understand doctrine and theology, will understand your Bible. And you're oftentimes afraid, well, I don't, I don't know everything in the Bible. I don't understand all the Christian doctrine. What if they ask me questions I don't know? <laughs> doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit will give you the understanding and wisdom to be able to answer. And if you don't know, guess what will happen? You'll begin to learn. And the Holy Spirit will teach you more to make you better the next time. So you have a spirit that reveals, but then the spirit is necessary because he emboldens, he empowers people. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And one of the key marks that you'll notice in the book of Acts is that when the Holy Spirit is filling the people, 
boldness tends to come as a result. And that is absolutely necessary. Compare the apostles after chapter 2 of Acts to where they were in the last chapters of the Gospels when Jesus is arrested. And they're all bragging, you know, Jesus, we'll go, we'll go to the death. We'll never deny you. You know, they said that at the Lord's Supper, right? He says, oh, don't worry, you're all going to deny me. And, and, you know, Peter, guess what? That rooster thing, you know, that's, that's going to happen soon. And, uh, so, but then you compare them to after Acts or after chapter 2. And Peter's up there preaching. And he's preaching to oftentimes the same types of people that crucified Jesus 50 days previously. And then after that, they get arrested and they're, they're before the Sanhedrin. <laughs> All the scribes and elders, you know, Peter and John. These are the guys that had crucified Jesus. And notice their power and their boldness and testifying of who Jesus is. Again and again, they need the power of the Spirit to embolden them. And we're no different than any of those apostles. We're made out of the same mud. We might think, oh, I'm going to be brave for Jesus. But when we get put into the fire, how oftentimes do we crumble? And we recognize, just as Peter saw his own weaknesses, we see our own fears. We need the Holy Spirit to embolden us, to make us true, to stand before criticism, to stand before a world that thinks we're bad people for what we believe. So the Spirit is necessary in order to be a witness to the world. Also, the Spirit or Jesus has a plan in order for his church to witness to the world. First of all, you'll notice in verse 8, he says, you will be my witnesses. In other words, the church belongs to Jesus. We are part of his body. We are an extension of him. He has called us into salvation, called us into a union and fellowship with him. We are workers and servants. We are employed by Jesus to spread the word. But we are spreading the word about him, who Jesus is. We are spreading the word about his grace, his forgiveness, his love, his transforming power. We are spreading the gospel, the good news of the salvation that we experience in Christ. You are his witnesses. And the first thing, and the most powerful thing that you can witness to about Jesus is that you have experienced him, you're in a relationship with him, and he has changed you. That you have experienced his forgiveness, you have experienced his love, that he saved you as a sinner, that he didn't just choose you because you're a good religious moral person, but you have experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've come to him on the same terms as everyone that has been saved, that he is a doctor that heals sick people. 
And your testimony is of the love and forgiveness and the mercy of God upon you, the chief of sinners. And that his grace has been effective in bringing about a transformation of you. That you were lost, but now you're found. That his grace and love has worked in something in you. That perhaps you're a man that had anger issues and you, you were known for your temper. And all of a sudden you're, you're softer and kinder. You're not as upset anymore. And you only get angry when your, your footy team loses or something like that. But otherwise you keep your temper. Or perhaps you're a woman and you're given to gossip. And you're a malicious gossip. And now since you've met Jesus, you're just a normal gossip. But you're hoping to get better even in that. But do you have some testimony? You don't have to know the whole Bible back and forth. But can you testify that Jesus has changed you in some way? That there's a reality you're experiencing Christ. That it's not just ritual and religion. So we begin with being his witness. But he does have a plan. And we see that in verse 8. You'll be my witnesses where? And he has a four-point plan. Begins in Jerusalem. Moves to Judea. And then Samaria. And then the ends of the earth. And as Jesse goes through the book of Acts, you'll notice that the book plays out in accordance to this plan. So in chapters 2 through 7, the apostles, the early church, are in Jerusalem. And they're reaching Jews. And then after, particularly after the stoning of Stephen, things begin to spread out. <laughs> Not by their plan, <laughs> but because God in his providence forces them to spread out. All of a sudden, the word begins to spread throughout Judea and Galilee. And then as you look in chapter 8, we see Philip the evangelist. And where does he go? Samaria. And likewise, Peter goes to Samaria also. So the Samaritans are getting saved in chapter 8. But then, with the arrival of Paul, with his conversion, and particularly in chapters 13 and onwards with his mission journeys, we see the gospel going to the ends of the earth, reaching whom primarily? Gentiles. And the ends of the earth is a reference to spreading everywhere, but you're reaching Gentiles as you reach there. So Peter was primarily the apostle to the Jews, and Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. But we, therefore, we see a plan that is going to reach through all of the book of Acts and then beyond the book of Acts into our world for the last 2,000 years. So Jesus has a plan to share this message. The third point we'll look at, though, is then the chosen ones. Who is going to spread this message? As we look in verses 12 through 26, we have this little explanation of what happens with the issue of the death of Judas. Now, as you look at this plan here, you kind of, or you, as you look at this section here, 
and you consider the fact that Judas died, you might ask the question, did Jesus mess up when he chose those 12 disciples? Because one of them would betray him. Did Jesus not understand the true nature of Judas? Did he make a mistake that one of the guys failed him? You know, did he have a plan A, but now you got to shift the plan B because, well, Judas was a big mess up? Well, the answer is no, Jesus did not mess up. And that the betrayal of Judas was all part of plan A. And we have a continuation of plan A in the replacement of Judas. And how do we know that? Is because the failing, the betrayal of Judas was all part of the plan. In verse 15, it says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers, and he said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Judas. So, the Old Testament, so if you look in Psalm 69 and, and Psalm 109 speaks about the betrayal of the one, you know, the one that, that ate bread with me will lift up his hand against me. That Jesus was fully aware that Judas would betray him. And that that betrayal was part of the message or part of the plan in which Jesus would be crucified which would then bring about the salvation of the world. So within God's preordained, foreordained plan, it was, it was planned for Judas to be chosen, but for him to be a betrayer who would then bring about the crucifixion of the Christ, to bring about the salvation of the world. So there was no mistake in God's planning. And that should give us some assurance that when things go wrong from our perspective in the kingdom of God, it is not as if Jesus has messed up in his governance and management of the church. That all these things are part of his plan. That they fulfill what God has said. And this is important because oftentimes we question what God is doing. And sometimes we wonder, is he still on the throne? Is Jesus still king and head of the church? Because oftentimes the church is not doing that well, and we begin to question his management or perhaps his power and control over the church. But such a colossal fail on the part of Judas was actually part of God's will. It fulfilled Scripture. So you see then that Jesus didn't fail. The plan is still going. And part of that plan, therefore, is both that Judas falls, you know, he commits suicide, he's dead. But as it says in verse 20, let another take his office. That there needs to be a replacement for this Judas. There, there is now an opening. We have a new opening in the twelve. And because the scripture says, let another take his office, the apostles and 
particularly Peter, said, it is God's ordained will that another apostle must come into that office. So there needs to be a replacement. And the idea with the 12 is that these 12 need to be those who have traveled with Jesus. They are credible witnesses. They've seen him from the beginning, both his baptism, his teaching, his miracles, his death, and particularly his resurrection. Just as Luke wants to present an account which is credible to all people, he needs to have credible witnesses, so these apostles have to be confirmed that they have seen the risen Jesus, that when they testify to him, it's not secondhand, that they can say, we saw Jesus resurrected physically, and they have that absolute certainty of knowledge so that if they're willing to go to death, they're not going to budge on that confession because they know, they know, they know it's the truth. So the replacement has to be someone like that who has seen Jesus, experienced Jesus, and seen his resurrection. Hence, they whittle it down to two guys that fit the criteria of someone that has seen and been with Jesus, and that's Joseph and Matthias. And they need to make a choice. It gets down to the issue, though, how do you choose leadership? And the practical decision at that time was, well, how do you choose an apostle? Well, who chooses an apostle? Who gets to choose an apostle? Well, at that level of authority, there's only one person that can choose who an apostle is, and that is Jesus himself. If you go back to chapter or verse 2, it refers to the apostles, the apostles whom he had chosen. So Jesus chose all of those apostles. And you read the, the Gospels, you know, he, he prays to the Father one night, and the next day he chooses who those 12 apostles would be. So apostle has to be chosen by Jesus. It has to come from God. So there is, but there's two sides to it. There's a human side and, and a God side to the choosing. From the human side, there has to be some kind of credible objective test. And the test that the apostles had was that it had to be someone that tra traveled with Jesus, had seen Jesus, had been a witness so that was their test, but they needed God's input. And without a divine voice from heaven saying, choose Matthias, they had to come up with a way. So they cast lots between the two. And the book of Proverbs talks about that it's a legitimate way to make decisions. This is nowhere on the level of uh, choosing apostles. But sometimes in our family, when we have to make a, a difficult choice, it's like my wife and I are sitting together and we, we smell something bad and we realize it's our toddler with a dirty nappy. We're saying, who shall change this dirty nappy? We have to make this decision and, and lest it bring a rift and an argument into the family, we say, okay, rock, paper, scissors. And we make the decision, and we recognize it's the divine will of God. 
the loser changes the nappy. So, so there is an actually practical way in life to make casting of lots, where you have to make some flip a coin or something like that. And there's nothing wrong with that when the decision itself, um, if it's helpful in creating peace. So there is a, a sense, though, as they recognize that they prayed about it. And they recognize that, Lord, you make the decision. You know the hearts of all those. You show which of these two men you have chosen. So the casting of lots was their method to say, Lord, it's up to you from heaven. Use the lots. You choose one. And it fell on Matthias. But there's an interesting um, principle that we could gain from this in terms of leadership in the church. And that is there's two ways, there's two aspects to the choosing of leaders, whether it's within the church in lay ministry, or if it's the pastorate. Maybe you're a man out there and you're wrestling with, oh, do I, should I become a pastor preacher someday? I don't know you guys, so I don't know if that's happening, but it very likely could be happening. Well, it's what they call there are two aspects to that decision, and that is what they call the internal call and the external call. The internal call is within that man's heart. He is wrestling whether God by his spirit is calling him, choosing him. He's feeling this tugging and this pulling and this and it's, it's mental and it's an emotional and, and it's this wrestling with, I feel God is choosing me, setting me aside to ministry. That's the God side of things internally. And it can be a most torturous experience in life. But then there's an external call and it's more objective. It involves other people. And that is the church looks at that man, that person, and says, do we see the character, the spiritual maturity, the abilities, the work ethic, the desire to serve, the love, the deeds? Do we think this God is actually equipping and developing this person for such a task? And that it involves men and women looking at that person and going, yeah, we see it. He knows his Bible. He knows his theology. He has good character. So there's a human side, an objective side in that choosing. So within leadership of the church, both of those things come together. That mysterious sense in which God is calling and choosing someone. And then there's that more objective and human side of things where we affirm and recognize, yes, God has chosen that person for works of service. So there's a choosing of God into ministry. But there's another choice of an apostle that comes about. And we see that later in the conversion of Saul, the persecutor. And we see it in chapter 9. When on the Damascus road, Paul is being converted. He's going up there to, to kill Christians, imprison them and kill them. And, and he sees Jesus, a vision of him. And then Jesus speaks to Ananias, one of the Christians, and says, go share the gospel with him and baptize him. And, and what does he say of him? He says to Ananias, go 
for he is a chosen instrument of mine. That Jesus chooses the Apostle Paul to be one of the apostles. Now, an interesting exegetical and theological discussion that has no implications on your salvation whatsoever is, is Paul the actual 12th apostle? And perhaps Matthias wasn't it? Or what happens in chapter 1 is legitimate and valid and he fits and he fulfills the 12. But does the, rank, does the scope of apostles, is it more than 12? Are there 13, 14, 15? So either Paul fulfills is the actual filling of that office or the apostleship goes to 12 plus with Paul as a 13th or a 14th apostle. Doesn't affect any of your salvations, but we know for certain that Paul or Jesus chooses Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And in so many of his letters, Paul introduces himself as, what? Paul, a servant and apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, chosen not by man, but by Jesus himself. So God chooses the apostles. He's chosen Paul. And he's chosen you. He's chosen you to be a witness to the world. You're not an apostle. I'm not an apostle. But you are someone who's experienced Christ. And you can be his witness. You can share the truth of Christ, both how you've experienced him and how you've learned of him through the scriptures, that you can be a true witness and testimony of the reality and the gospel of Jesus Christ to this generation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chapter. We thank you for the calling you've given us in Christ Jesus. And we would pray that we would be faithful witnesses to our world and our generation. That we would not be ashamed of you. That when you come back with the glorious angels, that you will say, well done, my good and faithful servants. That we will be found to be true witnesses of Christ in our words, our speaking, but also in our deeds, that we've truly reflected the very heart and nature of the love of God in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. 